Hello, and welcome to the AgTech So What podcast. Emerging technologies are rapidly changing the global agricultural industry, and we believe that this revolution is only getting started. But there's still too much hype out there and too big of a disconnect between ag and ag tech. So on this show, we try to bridge that gap. In each episode, we bring you the story of a different innovator in agriculture and try to find the place where ag and tech meet. I'm your host, Sarah Nolette. Today's guest is Aidan Connolly, who you've probably heard of if, like me, you hang out on LinkedIn or read about ag tech, though maybe that's just what I do. Anyways, Aidan is currently the CEO of ag tech startup Cantus, which he'll talk a lot about. Previously, he helped to grow Alltech, a global animal health and crop science company based in Kentucky, from $8 million to $2.5 billion. Aiden is also an author and investor. We start in this episode with how Aiden got into agriculture. Well, I suppose when you're in, when you grew up in Ireland, agriculture is all around you. Certainly the country, we've always said that you can't find anybody in this country that isn't either from the land or whose parents or grandparents are not from the land. And generally speaking, it's one generation. In my case, however, my closest contact was the founder of Alltech, which was Dr. Pierce Lines. He was the founder of a company that was involved in probiotics and prebiotics. And I joined him, did some internships, and then joined the company full time and ended up and found myself on a farm, both uh, milking cows, taking care of sheep and beef cows, beef cattle. And from that, then joined the company and on a 28-year career, lived and worked in agriculture in France and Brazil, lived in the US, moved back to Ireland, where I was working in 50 countries as their vice president, then moved to Washington, D.C., where I got to know different types of animals (laughs) in the political scene over there, and finally ended up in Lexington, Kentucky as chief innovation officer. So so I suppose um, agriculture came to me directly through through in that way, and I was thrown very, very much in at the deep end. I love that you've now seen a couple different perspectives of the ecosystem, like having spent time on farms, but also from an investment perspective, from a big company, and now from a, a smaller, although increasingly big company. Maybe tell the story of going from transitioning from what was a large company in the form of Alltech down to a startup. How did that opportunity come about, and, and how did you make that decision? From my perspective, it, it, people always feel that you work for this large corporation called Alltech, and how do you go to work for a small company? But of course, I started out with a small company called Alltech. So when I joined Alltech, the turnover was about $24 million. When I think back to one of my internships with Alltech, I think the turnover was around $8 million. So in the period of time that I knew that company, as I saw Dr. Lines grow the company, in effect, it was a startup that became a unicorn. And being worth two, well, turnover two and a half billion and being worth obviously in the billions of dollars just, just demonstrated what was possible. So when I had the opportunity to join Cantus, it sort of felt like I was going back to the beginning, felt like I was going back to the beginning of my career where everything was possible where you could create a team around you, choose the best people, choose the people you wanted to be with, put them in the right seats on the bus and start driving the bus down the road and see how far you could go. 
And and I think that's the excitement for most people getting involved in startups. It's that you remove the bureaucracy, remove some of the stuff that you sometimes find yourself dealing with day to day. As, as Pierce Lyons used to call it, you go where you're celebrated, not where you're tolerated. So I, I, from, from my perspective, it didn't seem perhaps as big a change as it might to many from the corporate world. It seems as though I was regaining some of the excitement I'd had at the beginning of my career. And and I think that's, again, why many people embrace the idea of either starting startups or joining startups. You, you get that excitement. It's interesting. Like the, I, I totally agree. One, I guess, other side of that would be the the risk profile seems really great to kind of go back to somewhere with, you know, the systems and processes aren't built and I have to make all the decisions and there's lots of risk. Um, was there ever a moment of, oh, I don't know if, if this is the, the right choice? I don't know if there was a moment. I'd say there were lots of moments. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's been one single one. I think there's been lots of points of time which I've thought, have I lost my mind? What am I doing here? But I think that, you know, I have an age and stage in my career where I've done a lot and I feel I've been very successful. I hope others would judge it the same way. I know a lot of that success has come from being surrounded by the right people and being surrounded by people who have made, made me look good. But, but the fact is that I've also reached a, a stage where I'm financially more secure and that makes it possible to take those risks that maybe I couldn't have taken when I was in my 20s. Mm. And I think, frankly, um, most people don't expect to see entrepreneurial ship in people in their 40s, 50s. But it's actually a very good time to do it because you have a lot of energy. You have a lot of ideas. You have a lot of sense of what you're good at and what you're not good at. Maybe more self-confidence. Hopefully more of a financial... Um, underpinnings, you know, to prevent you from feeling you're going to plunge down some, in some sort of ravine. So so I'd certainly, and I know I've had the opportunity to say this to people, I've certainly said to them, if you're at that stage of your career, why, why would you continue doing something you're not enjoying or enjoying less than you did in the past? Why not go and find something that you really do want to do and uh, find that opportunity to, to, to go and grow, grow yourself? Aiden is onto something here. Though the famous stories of startup founders feature the 20-year-old hacker entrepreneur who builds a billion-dollar company overnight, the reality is often quite different. According to a Harvard Business Review study, the average age of the most successful startup founders is 45, which is a lot older than people think. I mentioned this stat to Aiden. Yeah, I, I would believe that. And I don't think I knew that. I certainly knew that people weren't necessarily starting business in their 20s. And when you go to some of these hubs, you're typically seeing people, obviously, in their 30s. But many of those are on their first startup. And, of course, in order to succeed in startups, sometimes you have to fail as a startup. So there, there's a sense of he, she started it and, oh, my goodness, look at this phenomenal success they had, ignoring all of the background of how many hard yards you, you, you have to put in to create the basis, the opportunity for, for what you do later. So entirely, I, I would agree with the idea that, and, and I've seen plenty of evidence that, that some of the more successful people in certainly in ag tech tend to come even with a few gray hairs, which, uh, which is a bit of a shock. Yeah, I think it's definitely true in, in agriculture because you need that kind of industry experience and expertise at times. So Aiden, tell me about some of the lessons you've maybe 
learned or kind of principles that you're applying to Cantus? Because in your role at Alltech, you would have seen many different startups and how the ag tech space was evolving. What are some of the lessons you've been able to take to Cantus and, and implement there? I suppose when, when I think about the situation, uh, particularly with the Pierce Lines Accelerator, which I was involved with for three years as the director, I got to see two cohorts come in and got to see the start of the third cohort being selected. So probably saw 300 very serious ag tech companies. And when I say 300, 300 is very representative of, of the world of, of ag tech. And I know we see some numbers that tend to be much larger than that, but most of those large numbers include a whole load of food tech companies, retail tech companies, tech that I don't see particularly as being ag tech. So within those, it was just very clear that there's a massive gap between agriculture and technology and that many of the tech companies going into agriculture don't actually really understand the needs of farmers, have never been on a farm to any great degree, may have gone to a farm with their idea, worked it through with a particular producer. But that producer may, might even be somebody who isn't necessarily representing the mainstream of, of what happens in farming today. So from that perspective, I think what I really liked about Cantus was the fact that it was being founded by people who had foundations in farming, who had really a sense of what was required in a crop field, what was required when raising animals, what was required when, when milking cows. Those connections just make for stronger foundations for the, for the startup from the beginning. And unfortunately, a lot of startups don't have it. You see, I would have seen routinely solutions I saw one, for example, which was really a fantastic technology for, for sifting grains and um, was capable of identifying toxins within the grains and able to separate them into two streams based on what it saw using artificial intelligence. But it could separate 500 uh, kilos, so about 1,000 pounds of, of grain an hour. That's just simply not going to work on a, on a train or a, on, a, on a ship being offloaded. Yeah. We're talking about tens of thousands of tons an hour. So these, this, this disconnects sometimes between what is actually required and what will actually work on a farm, in a feed mill, in the agricultural field is something which uh, particularly galls me and, and make, makes it difficult for most of these technologies to succeed. And I saw in Cantus, they clearly had that. I mean, there, there have been other things we found there also in terms of where, where Cantus can succeed that were perhaps non-traditional and surprised me. But, but I think the first and basic one is, 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 is their connection with agriculture. Hmm. And for companies that don't have that from their founding team, like they haven't started with the farmer on the team, what advice would you give to them to kind of get that expertise and make sure they, they don't fall into some of those, those kind of naive traps? Well, again, just drawing on the experience of Cantus. So we have taken all 40 employees to farms. We've put them on farms with farm trainers. We've taught them in the signals of how to recognize different behaviors, specifically in this case in dairy cows. So what are we looking at? Why is a cow standing and not laying down? Why should she be laying down? What's the benefits of laying down? Why are they walking funny? Why does it look like they're 
uncomfortable? What is their feeding behavior, drinking behavior? And clearly, if they're going to be designing algorithms and programs to identify what they see digitally through cameras, it's very important to not just simply see that as some sort of thing that you read in a book that you, you need to have actually been on the farm. We have one, one, of, one of our team who grew up on the farm and has worked in farm technologies before. And it's amazing to see, even though English is not his first language, how absolutely faster, quicker he adds to the team. He brings more to us. He brings more insights, both within his ability to program, but also in his ability to understand what he's seeing through, through the cameras. I was going to edit in me giving a description of Cantus, but I think it would be better if you describe what you guys do. Um, so, <laughs> so, so I'll put you to work. Um, so yeah, tell, tell me what you guys do. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I um, Sometimes I find myself on a, on a bus or a plane and somebody says to me, what do you do? And I describe it and I say, oh, it's facial recognition of cows. And I said, no, it's not facial recognition of cows, <laughs> but it's the easiest way to remember it. And often your subconscious process it that way. We're using cameras to look at animals. We are specifically looking at the moment at dairy cows, but we will be looking at other species in the future. We observe those animals and we see how they behave. We're looking specifically to recognize them through all of the body markings, how they stand, how they walk. So from those recognition systems, which, which previously, of course, as you know, would have been used for recognizing terrorists in airports, for recognizing people in different situations. I guess you have machine vision being used in factories today in certain specific situations. So we're applying it to look to see how much time eating, how much time drinking, how they behave while they're walking around, and particularly looking at animal welfare issues, uh, looking at environmental issues, but coming back always back to the productivity issue how do we help that cow? How do we help her produce more milk more efficiently with less stress, with less disease? So I guess you'd call it digitization of images for the purposes of recognition, both of the animals and also of the patterns of their behavior. There's so much focus on IoT and on putting like sensors on animals and, and doing that individual animal management. And yet the camera approach is is really different. It, it's more along the lines of remote sensing, like let's collect data more passively and kind of get smarter through the software. So yeah, I'm just curious your kind of thoughts on how the space will, will evolve and, and how you guys will continue to capture value. Sensors are the way to go. Today's sensors really allow you, as you say, IoT devices allow you to collect, collect information directly from animals in real time. There are challenges with sensors. You need to have a place to collect the information from the sensor. You need to make sure the sensor is actually on the animal. You need to make sure the sensor hasn't been broken. You need to make sure that you have a way to understand what that information means. There are opportunities with cameras that take that to the next level. It's going to take us some time to get there, but we've already seen extraordinary things. It, it is passive, so it doesn't require a human to be involved. However, if a human doubts what they're seeing or doubts what they're getting in terms of the answers, they do have the opportunity to simply switch on the camera and look at the images and confirm that from what they've seen from the camera, that it is actually true, indeed, that the 
animal is not eating, not drinking, not behaving in a normal manner. So from my perspective, the camera imagery represents a really a sea change, uh, an opportunity for a massive leap forward in terms of our understanding about animals. And sadly, maybe just realistically, we never have had that opportunity before. I, I know we have the sense of 100, 200 years ago, things were different. My daddy, my granddaddy, my grandmother, my mother, they were able to look at what was happening to their animals. Now, because of herd size, we can't do that anymore. But the reality, as you and I know, is nobody could ever watch animals 24 hours a day. So cameras can. Nobody could ever watch every possible movement of every animal in, in, in every corner. Though Caintus is working in dairy right now, Aiden has aspirations to use cameras in many other species. I was on a farm recently where we're evaluating the level of lameness on, uh, in cows, and through no ill will of the farmer or indeed their farm hand, they were not spotting what we could spot when we sat there for, stood there for, for 25 minutes looking at their cows which was that an awful lot of them were going lame. So it's this potential, this opportunity is really extraordinary. And if you want to think about what that could mean for, for chickens or for pigs, if you want to think about what that could mean for fish, uh, which is even more challenging because, of course, they're under the sea, and we don't today have the opportunity to be under the water looking at them. If you want to think about beef cows um, on the range or otherwise, if you want to think about what this could mean for, for even for species such as horses, it, it's just, it is the game-changing technology. Despite the potential of technologies like machine learning, we're still a long way away from being able to replace humans. The human brain is still an extraordinary piece of equipment, and despite the fact we're... Uh, <laughs> We're, we're announcing its demise every day with artificial intelligence. We're also amazed every day, the day later, when it turns out that the human brain can do things that computers can't. A classic example for me was um, when we discovered that we would go to farms, particularly in California, and if a cow is sick or if cow is required for treatment or if something's not right, uh, workers go by and naturally chalk the head of the cow with blue chalk. Well, from a computer's perspective, one day there was a black and white cow and next day there was a, a black, white and blue cow. <laughs> so they don't know that was the same cow. And the challenge, uh, the challenge of teaching a computer to recognize when a cow has suddenly gone blue and when the way that blue is not necessarily applied was in a uniform way, that, that's, that's an extraordinary challenge. Mm. And, and that just shows you how something very basic. Now, a human brain can cope with that without without any adaptation at all. It fully understands that that's the same cow. Mm. So those are little things, but from a programming perspective, those are huge things. And that's why I used to say in my last job, people say, you know, well, what do you think about the use of a prebiotic to replace antibiotics? What do you think about the future of yeast for reducing the carbon footprint of your cows? And I'd say, well, it does this, this, and this. It's not rocket science. I'd always say it's not rocket science. Well, in this new job with Cainters, I have to say, it is rocket science. <laughs> it is that difficult. So don't assume that this stuff is going to happen quickly or easily or cheaply. It isn't. But what it has the potential to do changes our planet forever. 
what has the response been from producers? I can imagine trust is, I mean, it's one, a big one that comes up in agriculture and I could imagine, especially in collecting that much data that there might be some concerns around how much both to trust the algorithms, like, is it really lame if I can't see the, the cows becoming lame, but the algorithm says it is, there's kind of a trust in the efficacy of the technology, but perhaps also a trust on data management and, and what this looks like down the road from a business model perspective. So I, I think the big challenge that perhaps we faced in terms of agriculture, and this probably goes back um, to even, I don't know, perhaps uh, 100 years ago, the quintessential person arriving in the town and presenting something, some magic potion, which is going to make your cows or produce more milk or your hens produce more eggs, the foo-foo dust uh, salesperson has created a level of mistrust in farming with the belief that new technologies typically don't work. And, and sadly, in that case, of course, it didn't work. And I think we've seen that same issue with ag tech. I, I described earlier why, from an ag tech perspective, you have people creating ag tech that maybe is not appropriate to the requirements of producers on the farm. From my perspective, what I really like about artificial intelligence, what I really like about cameras, what I really like about the types of systems I'm involved with at the moment is if you don't, don't believe what you're seeing on the screen, you have a self-verification, which is that you can use your eyes. You can simply switch from the screen where these numbers are coming through and presenting and telling you your cows spent 54 minutes this morning eating and you think they should have spent four hours. You can simply go back and view the footage yourself and confirm whether it's true or not. So I think that creates the opportunity to overcome that trust issue. But the trust issue is definitely there. And I think if you see surveys of farmers, producers, if you, if you ask them what their issues with ag tech are, they'll tell you, we don't trust that it's going to work. We've seen too many examples where it hasn't. It's costing us a lot of money to become the test site for uh, some startup out of San Francisco. So, so they have justifiable reasons for being, being skeptical. And I think that trust issue is going to be going to hold us back tremendously if we don't learn how to overcome it. Do you find that it's enough to say that you can go back and look at the images like that? That's enough. And they actually don't go back and look or do they need to both know they can go back and look and you actually probably can see from your data that in fact, they do do that quite frequently. I'm curious if it's, if it's more a psychological thing or if in practice, they actually go do look and check. Varies a lot depending on the producers. So producers that are skeptical and have had, let's say, been burnt by technology in the past will typically go back and look until they gain the trust at some point that what they're seeing on the screen confirms what they're seeing on their, on their uh, app. Mm. If you look at people that typically have had more success with technology, the gap or the time it takes to, to make that decision is much shorter. But I would have to say that... Uh, producers tend towards the more skeptical at the beginning when it comes to new technology. I think because of what you said, not that they're skeptical of technology, but that they've been burned in the past and, and that creates Absolutely. a challenge. Absolutely. No, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a challenge of where we are victims of not just our, ourselves, but of perhaps what's gone before us. And if we look at a thousand ag techs today, I would hesitate to put a percentage on how many are over-promising, but it's certainly north of 80% and maybe 90%. And in that situation, we shouldn't be surprised when producers are, are going to say, well, 
fool me twice, I'm a fool, they're going to really require you to prove what 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 you say is true. Do you think that's different, Aiden, in, in ag tech than in other spaces, or is it just more kind of prevalent in ag tech? I could imagine it being more prevalent because people don't have that experience of of on farm, as we talked about before. But I could also imagine it just being a natural in startups, but startups are more new to ag, and so it feels worse. My my sense is it is a feature of the agricultural world. My sense is that agriculture is taking longer to embrace new technologies in other areas and are finding it more difficult to justify the decision to invest in new technology. But probably if I sat down with uh, my colleagues, people who I would have met through universities, went into the financial world, they're probably going to tell me fintech is overpromised and underdelivered. <laughs> if I if I'm in the area of health tech, would I hear something similar? It feels to me as though agriculture is behind, but I'm not entirely sure how true that is. And sometimes I have the sense that perhaps we overplay it. But but it is it's definitely more difficult than other sectors. That that that's for sure. To solve some of these challenges, Aiden believes, like we do at Agentic, that we need more producers involved. Aiden has seen events like hackathons work well. A hackathon is where entrepreneurs and technologists come together with farmers, and farmers share problems that they're facing for those technologists and startups to work on. But Aiden also recognizes that for producers, working with startups, whether in hackathons or startup weekends, can be really frustrating. I think going to startup weekends, if they're in your community, is really interesting because you get to meet people that just have the passion to get started in something, and you can maybe help shape them from the beginning from their initiation into into the world to start off with the right idea. I think those two are very valuable. If you have the patience to work with startups, some days I do, some days I don't. Some days I, I, I have the desire to help people and then other days I realize this is going to take a lot of time and maybe I don't have the patience for it. And I think that that is okay because startups are going to ask a lot of very basic questions. They're probably going to feel by the end of the conversation, they've sucked your brains out of your head and uh, you know jumbled them all up and put them back in because they, they ask so many different questions about where do I raise money? How do I build a business? Who should I hire? What should I be using? What should I not be using? How should I approach you? So it, it's perfectly justifiable to say, look, I can't deal with that. That's too much. But if you do have the energy to do it, I'd encourage people to do it. The main thing I just repeat again is, Sarah, that the the importance of engaging to help people is very important for all of us because if these startups don't succeed, then then we don't succeed. Mm, yeah. I think the other insight that was kind of implicit in what you said, Aiden, was starting with the problem that you have. And so the reason hackathons and startup weekends can be really good is it forces a focus on what is the problem instead of people coming with a solution to pitch it. That's entirely right. Absolutely. And that getting that proposition right from the beginning, this is the problem we're solving. Unfortunately, you'd be very familiar with this in startup world. It's not difficult to spend $100,000. It's it, it happens at the blink of an eye. And then you see a lot of startups that are 500000 maybe even more, into the hole before they realize they're on the wrong road. So, so how do you get that right from the beginning? Do, do exactly as you've described. Over his career, Aiden has traveled all over the world looking at agriculture. And more recently, Aiden has been comparing ag tech ecosystems in places like Brazil, the Netherlands, Israel, and the U.S., 
he's very positive about what he's been seeing. Mostly what it feels like is a deluge, a tsunami of, of new ideas. A lot of it is not as focused as it's going to have to be to be successful. But huge amounts of enthusiasm and huge amounts of excitement about feeding the planet. And, and particularly having felt maybe 10 years ago that it was very difficult to have conversations with people that didn't know anything about agriculture to explain to them what we do in farming, how we produce food. A lot of times feeling that the audience was switching off. I feel there's a tremendous enthusiasm for those subjects in a way that wasn't there before. Mm. And it's a very exciting time to be involved in agriculture. And agricultural technologies allow us in some ways to connect with people in the cities in a way that perhaps we haven't for the last 10 or even 20 years. Yeah, I think that's right. In in those travels and looking at so many different startups and, and different ecosystems, are there any, well, I guess you, you also wear an investor hat. So you look at this from, from a couple different lenses, but are there some kind of spaces or areas that are either really exciting or, or maybe not so exciting? I'm the wrong person to ask that question of, Sarah, because I uh, <laughs> I get excited by everything. <laughs> I think a lot of people walk through and look at all the, the startups and tell you why 9 out of 10 aren't going to work. And I go through and think 9 out of 10 people in those companies are just the types of people I want to be around. And I, I'm excited by what they're doing. I see enthusiasm. I see energy. I see somebody trying to do something with their lives. And, and I want to be part of that. And in fact, I've had to hold myself back from, in some ways, being overly enthusiastic or overly optimistic about what can be done. Beyond just traveling, Aiden also does a lot of writing about ag tech. And this is the number one tip that I give people when they ask me how to get a job in ag tech or how to build credibility and networks in this space. Start sharing what you're interested in. Start creating content and you'll attract others who are interested in the same things. Aiden started doing exactly this, but for a slightly different reason, a frustration with academia. Yeah, about 10 years ago, I was invited back my, my, my alma mater in Ireland, University College Dublin, Smurfit School of Business, to start teaching on their MBA programs, particularly on the MBA programs relating to food. So as part of that, I was publishing in scientific or academic journals. And I was talking about things I was seeing in business, in agriculture and in business in general, that I thought would be important because I had practical insights that I thought I could share. And one of the challenges of academic journals are that not very many people read them anymore. So you publish an academic journal and you're lucky if it gets opened a hundred times and you might get two people to write back to you. And a colleague of mine from the university, um, Professor McLaughlin said, look, apart from academic journals, you should consider also writing on LinkedIn. So I took his advice. I started writing pieces on LinkedIn. I read up, how do you write on LinkedIn? And said, if your blog is being written, try to make sure it's got content, make sure it's really interesting and consider writing something maybe 2,000 words long, not 400 words long. So that's counterintuitive. Most of what you think about blogs are that they're extremely short, but it's true. When I read a good one and it stops just as I'm getting interested, I get a little mad. <laughs> so I said, okay, let's try it for 2,000 words. And so far, I've written about 35. More recently, in the last month, I started writing for Forbes, and that's they want the articles to be 800 words long. And that's quite difficult as well, because you know the, the famous story of Mark Twain writing a note to somebody and saying, apologize for writing a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. 
<laughs> Sometimes it is quite difficult to write a short, short blog. But the 2,000-word blogs have been doing very well for me. I had one blog that was downloaded, I think, 30,000 times. I didn't even realize 30,000 people in the world have cared about agriculture and digital technologies. But it just shows you what is possible if you, if you start to engage in this area. There is tremendous enthusiasm to understand more about it, and I seem to have tapped into that. Aiden's final message is an invite to you, our listeners, to connect with him. You can find his details and a few of his articles in the show notes. So definitely take the opportunity to reach out to Aiden if you're interested. I think that this community, whoever's listening to uh, this podcast and is thinking, wow, you know, really likes one of the things Aiden's talking about, and I'm thinking the same way, and I think that we should be connected more. The numbers of people like you and me, Sarah, who really are thinking about this area are not that big. And when I say 30,000 people reading a blog, that's, that's an enormous number for, for the sorts of things we think about. Unfortunately, we don't have the opportunity to reach hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people the way uh, maybe some people, Hollywood stars might. So from that perspective, it's just very important to be connected. And that's, that's really all I'd ask from this is if, if you're listening to this and thinking, hey, I'd like to connect with Aiden on LinkedIn, on Twitter, I'm very active on both of those. I'd like to send them an email because I've got an idea. I'd always try to respond to that. And I'd really encourage people, attend conferences, listen to podcasts like this as much as you can and try to learn more about how to communicate with the wider public. We have some fantastic stories to tell from agriculture. We have some extraordinary things that we're doing on farm. We will make some huge leaps in the next, um, I think in the next five to 10 years, in the way that we grow crops, treat animals, the way that we um, produce food that arrives onto that supermarket shelf, arrives into the, into the store, that arrives onto the plate of the consumer. Why not tell it and tell it with passion? Mm, such a positive message to end with. Thank you so much for uh, joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Enjoyed this immensely. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of AgTech So What? You can stay up to date with the latest episodes and news at agtechsowhat.com. And as always, if you have any feedback or other guests to recommend, we'd love to hear from you. Just hop on the website and leave us a comment or send us a message. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, and we hope you do, please share the podcast with a friend or leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.